I want to welcome everybody to Athlete 911 Sunday Clinics with uh, Masters of Baseball, my partner, Walter Beatty. We are a forum of positive, honest exchanges for the betterment of Athlete 911 players and families. And with the Masters of Baseball, our agenda is to help players all over the country and world in today's youth baseball environment. Like we always do, this conversation is positive information to help you. No agenda, but a talk to help players and families grow in our great game. This form of baseball talk and sharing philosophies and beliefs is for you, the player, the family member, the youth and high school college coaches, a forum for all of us to grow as people. We are lucky enough to have Dan Jennings with us tonight. Now, Dan has a huge, huge resume of working every job possible in Major League Baseball, um, unbelievable success, and just uh, a great person, a guy that um, I was at Long Beach State yesterday and saw some scouts and told them that he was going to be on the show, and they were just like, I got to get on there and listen to DJ, and uh, he's known as DJ through the baseball circles. Let me tell you a little bit about Dan. Uh, Dan is from Alabama. He uh, attended, I want to say, I hope I can say this right, Sasuma, Davidson, and Fairhope High Schools in Alabama. Uh, his dad, Don, moved between baseball coaching jobs, and Don eventually settled in as a longtime coach at Coastal Alabama Community College. Dan graduated from Fairhope in 1978. He attended the University of South Mississippi, where he played college baseball he coached the baseball team. He played college. Let me excuse me, guys. I'm I'm having a tough time looking through shadows here. He was a Southern Mississippi Golden Eagle. He graduated from William Carey University in 1984. He coached the baseball team at Davidson High School in Mobile, Alabama, from '85 until 1988. And then he got a, a he was working as an associate scout for the Cincinnati Reds beginning in 19. 19- 86. He was named an area scout for the Seattle Mariners in 1988. The Mariners promoted him to cross checker in 1995, and he accepted a job with the, C- the Tampa Bay Devil Rays as their scouting director later that year. Jennings joined the Marlins as the vice president of player personnel in 2002. He was named the assistant general manager there in September of 2007, and at the end of the 2013 season, he was promoted to general manager. Jennings also was the manager for the Marlins. Uh, he began on March 17th of 2015. And then on January 8th of 2016, Dan was hired by the Washington Nationals to serve as an assistant to Mike Rizzo, the GM of the Nationals. His current position. Guys, please. Welcome, Dan Jennings. DJ, welcome. Hey, Butch, thank you so much. I appreciate that and the nice introduction. And uh, hello to everyone out there. It's, uh, it's an honor to be uh, invited in to speak to, uh, speak to the group and give back to baseball and hopefully share some things that, you know, I've learned or either has been shared with me over time. And uh, I'm looking forward to this uh uh, to this Twitter conference call and uh, hopefully get some some things across that may help 
someone out there or certainly helps some uh, some young players who aspire to be uh, college or major league players. So I also think here, Butch, not to uh, cut something off, but I see a guy on here, Fernando Arguez, that worked with us. And if uh, that is the Fernando Arguez that I think, uh, it's great to see uh, Fernie online and uh, I'd like to wish a, a hello to him as well. A tremendous, tremendous baseball man and one heck of a scout. Pleasure, Mr. Dan, and I'll listen, man. Pleasure to be your friend. And Butch, like I said, I'm old enough to still call Butch Coach. (laughs) (laughs) He can tell you that story, DJ. Anyway, I'll listen, man. Blessing to be here. See ya. All right, buddy. Thanks, Bernie. Hey, Danny, now first question. Uh, Where was your love for the game nurtured? What what made you want to, you know, be be a scout, first of all? Well, uh, I have to go back to growing up in Alabama. We didn't have any professional baseball teams close to us uh, when I was a kid. Eventually, the Atlanta Braves come in, and that was the closest we had. Uh, But probably I I fell in love with the game because my father was a uh, a high school coach for over 50 years. And uh, when when I would go to bed at night, I would get KMOX out of St. Louis. Uh, If it was a clear night, I could get a radio signal. And I got to listen to the Cardinals of Lou Brock and Bob Gibson and uh, Musial and those guys. And so... There was just a passion of always loving the game, having an opportunity to play it as a young kid. And uh, through that, um, you know, I would say that my my love for the game grew and I had the opportunity to play it from high school and then into college and then signed out of a uh, tryout camp with the Yankees before it was deemed that I had a tragic lack of talent and I should do something else like scouting. <laughs> That happens to all of us, doesn't it? Yes, it uh, did. Can you, I, you know, you've done everything in, in baseball, in, you know, major league manager, scouting director, GM. Can you go through the phases of what there's, there's also people on here that are so interested in pro baseball and the whole structure and how it works uh, in pro baseball. Can you please go through like and start with an area scout. Talk about what you know, how important an area scout is, their responsibilities, and just um, you know, just, just things about scouting as an area scout. Okay, that'd be a pleasure. So I uh, I began as what what's commonly referred to as a bird dog scout or an associate scout while I was coaching high school baseball, and uh, I helped a gentleman here in the South uh, at that time. Basically, all the scouts in this area were guys that had been 30-plus years in the game. And uh, I helped him in about a 100-mile radius of my home. And uh, I would go out and see players that he requested, or I would chase a name down. And I was just a second set of eyes uh, in this area for him. And I recommended players based upon what I felt their ability was. Um, It was a non-paying position. It was just an opportunity to kind of get in on the ground floor and learn things. You know, now guys get into the game um, basically using the intern title. But at that time, I was an associate scout. And then uh, 
1988, uh, I was honored to uh, accept a full-time position with the Seattle Mariners. And uh, Bush, you and I worked together there. And as you know, Seattle was not a uh, it was not a very good franchise. And um, you know, especially being back in the East as I was, uh, people had no idea who Seattle was. They knew of the Seahawks, but not of the Mariners. We watched that grow from basically a, a team that was a perennial 100 loser uh, to a club that uh, Griffey's Mad Dash home saved uh, baseball in Seattle. Uh, and, and being an area scout was a thrill. It was truly an occupation that I loved. It was a passion for me. It was everything that you would dream of and desire to go out and be responsible for a territory to go and look for players and try to uncover talent to help your organization. And it brought back competitiveness that you love when you were a player. Uh, there was a, a responsibility of getting to know the players' makeup and what type of teammate they were. And we worked for a gentleman, Roger Youngward, who is a Hall of Famer. I mean, he would be on any wall of fame by any stretch of the imagination. And he emphasized to us the importance of looking for tools and players, but knowing the makeup, the bottom circle, as we used to talk in all of our meetings. So the area scout was truly a passion for me. It was a position that I loved. And because of that, I think it laid the foundation. I was an area scout for seven years, and I had the good fortune to uh, to recommend and sign 10 major league players during that time. And uh, to this day, I will tell you that it is the most valuable and important role in any organization because if you don't have players in your pipeline that either you can develop and they become major league players for you or your general manager can trade away, then you are going to be a average or below average team. And all of that begins with scouts out there who can find and sign quality talent and bring them in the system. Danny, can you mention the, the, the guys that you did sign as an area scout? I mean, that 10 guys is a lot of guys for an area scout to sign and, can you name the guys that you signed so these people have kind of an idea of the quality of, of player and people you did sign? Yeah, my first guy was a left-handed pitcher that I had to stretch the truth a little bit and say he threw 90 when he really threw about 86 to 88, uh, named Dave Fleming, who pitched on the World Series champion in Georgia. And uh, he flew through our system, uh, was in the big leagues really in about a year and a half because he had such good command of the strike zone and knew how to change speeds. And um, probably the best name guy that I signed who had a great career uh, was Jason Veritek. And, you know, in tech, he was uh, he became the captain of the Boston Red Sox and uh, was part of winning some World Series there and is certainly thought of in a great light up in that uh, New England area. Uh, and, and maybe one of the my favorite signees was a, a kid that I took uh, in the 18th round and uh, all he wanted was the opportunity and he got it and turned it into about an 11 year major league career in Darren Bragg. Um, and so those were three Andy Sheets, Brad Holman, uh, Ramon Vasquez, who Fernie on this call helped me sign. And that's a, a funny and long story. Uh, Tony Phillips, 
and uh, you know there were just some some guys as as the years unfolded that fought their way there. Uh, Ver, uh, Veritek was the highest pick of all of those. Fleming was a third rounder. And as a scout, and Butch, you know this because you've had the success in doing it, when you have those down-the-line draft picks who fight their way through the adversity that we all have to endure uh, and see those guys get there, uh, that feeling of success that it brings just creates a great, great uh, camaraderie between you and that player. Can you talk – I'm already getting questions to ask you, but can you talk about, you know, obviously you want the boxes checked on the abilities part of, of it, of the equation as an area scout, what did you feel like you had to do better than everybody to be the best scout in the area you had uh, for knowing the player? Well, I think that foundation was set for all of us, you, Fernie, and anyone else that ever worked for Roger Youngwood or Benny Looper. Um, they demanded a work ethic second to none. And it, it was our – it was expected of us to outwork the other people. Now, saying that, you knew there were other scouts in the area that worked as hard as you, but you got out you, – we used to call it flipping rocks. You turned over more stones. You, you found ways. You found inroads to go and see more kids in a given day. You drove the extra 150 miles to, to be in position tomorrow to have a kid in a workout before you saw two or three games on a particular day. So as an area scout, I felt like that was my job to represent to my organization – uh, the best picture. What you try to do as a scout is you try to paint a picture with words on what you're seeing. Or when I became a scouting director, I had a column on our reports. What are we buying? I wanted to know what the player truly was. And the most important thing that a good area scout can bring you is what kind of makeup does a player have? Is this guy a good teammate? Is How is he? Tell me what he does that's going to separate himself between the lines. That, for me, is where makeup comes into play. And as an area scout, and I learned this from my mentor, Mr. George Zura, I wanted to see a player go through some adversity. I wanted to see a guy struggle. I wanted to see a guy fail somewhere so that I could see how he responded to that. And uh, I go now, and I mean, hey, we're all guilty of it. You watch a young player play, they make an error, they strike out, and their head drops immediately, and they want to beat themselves up. And I remind people on this call, there's a certain guy who made 56, 56 errors one year. You can look it up in Greensboro, North Carolina, and just got put in the Hall of Fame a year ago, Mr. Derek Jeter. So what you can learn from a guy, once you see someone struggle, how they handle that adversity. Are they mentally strong enough to learn from mistakes, not beat themselves up, but continue to press forward and work to get better? That guy has a chance to be successful. Danny, can you talk about, you? I mean, you said some key words that, you know, we've had a lot of college coaches on here and you talk about makeup and the things that, you know, make it easier for you to, to like a player and sign a player. Can you talk about some of the instances where there's been things that have turned you off on a player 
so that the kids that are on this thing, they know that like when a scout's there, what are things that may turn somebody off about a player? Well, for me, it's, well, one thing that stuck out, I, I don't need to see cool. I don't, I'm not there to buy cool. I'm there to look at ability. I don't need to see that you're the coolest kid getting off the bus or the coolest kid in the dugout. I need to see energy. I need to see passion. I need to see effort. I, you, we've all been to games where you go look at certain player and the opposing coach chooses to intentionally walk the guy three or four times. That's out of that player's control. There's nothing he can do. But what he can do is give me the effort once they walk him on the bases, heads up, being alert, looking to take the extra 90 feet in the field, backing up plays, being a good teammate, picking his guys up that, that run into some adversity or failure. All of those things are part of what a good area scout can do, and they're trained to look for those things and watch them. And when I don't see those things, then I know one or two things. Either he's too immature to go out and begin his pro career, or he's not a good teammate, or there's a level of selfishness that is going to deter him from handling the adversity. And I think a good scout will dig through those things, whether it's conversations with athletic directors, coaches, teachers, uh, coaches that had a young man, and I don't know if they still call it this now, but we used to play American Legion ball and Babe Ruth ball and different levels you know, of, of ball. But you try and find people who can give you some insight and to what type of player, what kind of person, is he mature enough, is he a guy that the other players gravitate to, what is his work ethic, how hard does he work to get better, and how does he handle things when they don't go his way? That was a gold answer. I appreciate that. I want to welcome onto this call Scott Jackson, big time. Congratulations on your sweep. Um, glad you're here. Next question, DJ. Somebody asked me, how do you become a bird dog scout for an organization? Now, that's a great question. And I, for me, it was – when I would go to uh, – when I was coaching in high school, I always tried to show – and I knew some of them from my days playing, but I always tried to show respect to the scouts. Go up, have a conversation. Hey, how you doing? Where you from? You know, what's it like doing this job? You know, just, just a conversation, just an open forum where there's no agenda, boom, 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 and say, you know – I would like I would like to know a little more. I'd like to get involved in this. Is there, you know, can I help you back here? Can I be your eyes while you're away in Georgia and, you know, go see some players or give you some names of guys that I've seen? And I think that's still the way, you know, communication now we've gotten so to where everything is, you know, we're we're looking down at a phone or we're doing it over the email. But to, to actually become that associate or bird dog, I think if you have conversations with guys and, you know, you're not going to like everyone, everyone's not going to like you. But there's someone there that you will click with uh, that could be looking for help. And all you're trying to do is get one door open. And once that occurs, then you got that opportunity. Thank you for answering that. Now, the next question, when you um, moved into the bigger playground, as a cross-checker, can you now talk about 
what your responsibilities were when you became a cross checker. So everybody knows, you know, everybody hears that word cross checker. What's a cross checker? Could you tell all these people what a cross checker is and what he does and what he's responsible for? Uh, the best summation that I can give you on a cross checker, uh, if you do the job the right way, you're a comparison scout. Now, I've had cross checkers that wanted to come in and either try to work my territory or tell me who could or who couldn't play, you know, and do things of that nature. And it, it turned me the wrong way. But I had other guys who come in and they show respect and they go, DJ, who's your top five guys? Let's go take a look at these guys. And what you're trying to do, your ultimate job as a cross checker, uh, I was responsible for the middle third of the country, the Midwestern part, is I'm trying to compare this kid in Texas to a kid in Oklahoma to a kid in Alabama. And in doing so, trying to put them in some type of order for my organization, my scouting director, so that they are prioritized and then they know who they need to come in and see based on the reports we have and how they match up against the other players in that particular region. Good cross-checkers are invaluable because they do two things. Number one, they compare. And I, I wish they were not called cross-checkers. I wish they were truly called comparison scouts. But number two, they can help bring along and train a young scout and break him out of his shell to where he becomes more aggressive, more willing to take chances. And by doing that, then you're creating a guy who, if he makes a mistake, which we all have and we all do, he'll own up to it, he'll learn from it, but he will also learn that the organization is paying him for his opinion and the conviction on that opinion. And when you can create that by helping a young guy, mentoring him, sharing with him your failures and things that you've learned, then you can help make a scout become a true producer and a difference maker in a territory. Dan, can you talk about, uh, you know, people hear how much a scout works can, can you talk about how much time, uh, say, a cross-checker in a region is on the road spending time away from home? Oh, boy. <laughs> um, you know what? That, uh, that's truly one of the toughest jobs in baseball. The, the grind, it's a passion job, but it is probably the ultimate grind because you are essentially – pretty much in an airplane every day, every other day, and you're bouncing and hopping all throughout your territory. Uh, you sacrifice a lot of family time. You sacrifice things with, you know, your kids as they grow up and, and they're participating, and it's things that you will never get back. Uh, I, I was a scouting director, and my wife calls and tells me my son has hit his first high school home run and I'm out in California and he hits the home run back in Louisiana. And it's just, you don't get those things back. So there's a trade-off to it, but your time spent, the amount of hours and effort, and you can put together what you think is the most perfect week. And you need about two days of rain to completely undo all of the hard work that you and your area scouts have put together. And then you're, you're on the scatter plan and you're having to jump and move to get uh, 
plan B executed and then come back and go through your the original plan that you had. So uh, truly one of the most difficult but most valuable jobs in the business provided a guy does it for a comparison's sake and not to go in and, and supersede or over uh, um, overstep his lines where an area scout's concerned. Danny, how, how did you, as a cross-checker, um, you know, hold the noise to a minimum? You know, you go into parks, guys are talking, trying to get information. Uh, how, how, how did you handle that? Because I think you're one of the best in the business at it. Can you kind of give us a, a view of that? Um, Fernie and I were trained by the same gentleman, Mr. George Zura, through Roger and um, you know, George, he was a master of telling them what they know. And I was blessed to be around that. And so, you know what, you would say things that you knew people knew and try to get tidbits. And then I would call the scout and I'd say, listen, I just left so-and-so and there's a lot of noise about Jim Smith at East High School. I don't know if you've seen him or not seen him, just know that the noise is out there. Um, because I always tried to protect my area men, um, but I did not want to give up anything that might hurt my guy from potentially getting a player. And that's the competitive part of what you do. I mean, you're, you're competing against 29 other clubs, and your scout in that area is the most vital part of, of the puzzle that is going to give you that opportunity to go out and get the best players. Okay, so now you have, you know, you're a cross checker. Now you become a scouting director. And um, can you go over everything there is about a scouting director? What you felt like was your responsibility to your organization? Talk about a draft room and what you tried to do in a draft room and just the things that go into being a scouting director. Wow. This, this might take the full time, but. Uh, it was one of the greatest jobs I ever had. Uh, one of the things that made it so unique at that time uh, when I interviewed for that job, I was very happy in Seattle. It was 1995, and uh, we were in the middle of one of the greatest seasons in the history of the Seattle Mariners. And um, I was asked to come and interview for the scouting director's job. 36 years old, I think, and you know, I look back now and I'm not afraid to say it. There's some things you know, I didn't know what I didn't know, but I knew that it was an opportunity that ultimately one day I wanted. And that day was now. And I jumped into an organization. Uh, I was the third hire in the history of the organization. And quite honestly, it was building something from the ground up. We didn't have scouting manuals. We didn't even have letterhead and envelope. All of these things we had to put together uh, had to travel over the entire country and hire a scouting staff, both uh, domestically as well as internationally. And uh, it was it was truly the greatest lesson of all my time in baseball to be a part of building something from the ground up uh, and, and a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun, fortunate to hire some great baseball men and uh, – we, we put together during that time frame 54 guys uh, in the big leagues, and uh, there were about four or five guys that uh, 
that worked for us there that went on either to become scouting directors, farm directors, or general managers. And uh, just being a part of that and building it from the ground floor, uh, truly one of the more rewardable things that I've ever been fortunate enough to be a part of. Can you talk about – can you talk about a draft room and what goes on in a draft room and how you, um, you know, take information, use it, and uh, put it into your draft board before you're going to draft the player? So what we did, uh, the way that we tried to do it, is we would uh, we would go around before we brought everyone into the draft. Um, we would go around to each individual territory, each scout's territory, and we would have pre-draft workouts. And, boy, our scouts were great. They would get all the players on their list, or most of them, bring them in, and we would get one-on-one time in a workout, different things, get to know the player a little bit, you know, break down some barriers, and uh, tremendous. It wore us out, and we paid the price for it because it was, uh, it was truly about a 10-day grind. At the same time, I think we were more prepared when we went into the room. Um, we would bring in all of the cross checkers and then I tried to bring in either one or two of the area scouts so they could get a true understanding of what transpired so that it would help them develop, uh, if they were to move into a cross check role or scouting director role, but it would also help them in their area when they were putting together their list. And we would work, um, setting up usually about, uh, six to eight days uh, setting up our board. We had a draft board with all of these magnets with the names on them and pertinent information. And we tried to, we would work it north to south and then we'd go east to west. And by that, I mean, we would line up a position, let's say catchers, and we would line up the catchers and we would put them in the groups that they go in working north to south. And then we would get them lined up that way. Then we do first baseman and all the way down and across the board. Then when we put the master together, we started working east and west so that you're truly comparing the best catchers against the best outfielders throughout the country as we're putting our board together. And you had some great discussions. I mean, that's when you really had some guys take the gloves off and you saw conviction and you saw the passion of, what they felt and what they believed and some of the best decisions that we made were during this time frame when guys could you know compare what they had seen in other places and other players and get their true feelings out there and that for me was you know I would ask questions and then I would sit back because I, if I had seen the player, I knew what I felt. I didn't need to make the room feel the way I felt. I needed to hear what they felt because when you're a scouting director and you're about to spend millions of dollars on a pick, I need to know that Butch Bacala is as convicted as I am on this guy. I need to know the good and the bad. And we were, we were very lucky to have guys that they come in without a holster on and they were pulling the trigger and they were telling you exactly what they thought either way, good or bad. And I felt like that was something that we did uh, maybe as good as any room I've ever been in. Danny, how how did you handle self, you know, selfish scouting? You know, when you get in those draft rooms, sometimes there's guys that it's just about how many players they could get. 
how how did you handle that type as a, as a scouting director? I, I tried to at first. I would try to pull them aside and I talk to them about you know it's not it's not me it's we and I use that in all my speeches. I always say it's us it's we. I never try to uh, I never try to make it about me or I and. If that didn't work, um, we had evaluations at the end of the year, and I would uh, have a cross-checker sit in with me, and uh, at the end of the evaluation, I signed the form. I had the scouts sign the form, and we tried to talk about their strengths because you want guys to grow, and you – we needed them to be good, but we also talked about the weaknesses and areas where we felt like that they could get better. And if, you know, being selfish and only thinking about those guys getting players and not what was best for the organization, then that went into the evaluation. They signed it. And if it didn't improve, then unfortunately there were times when you have to, uh, when you have to let some people go and, and, you know, we had to do that sometimes. When you were looking at scouts and then, you you know, you're sitting on the top perch, uh, what were the three most important things that you wanted from, you know, say that your cross checkers, what did, what did you want and need from them that was most important to you? Work ethic, number one, by far, hands down. If guys are working, they're going to get out there and they'll find it. They'll grind. They'll find it. They'll find ways to win. They'll find ways to get better. Honesty to the organization. I don't need fabrication. I need honesty. We're spending someone else's money. If I can't represent the truth to the organization, then I'm lying to the ball club and all of us lose in that situation. And then the final thing was the ability to be loyal. Not so much to me. I mean, uh, a, a scout, an area scout that I had out in Arizona by the name of Charles Scott, who was Barry Bond's roommate at Arizona State, Gave me one piece of advice one time, really unsolicited. We were just having a casual conversation. If you want respect, give respect. And it's something that's never left me. And I've tried to treat everyone I've ever worked with or worked for that way. And I think if those three things, you can create that amongst the staff and know that all over the country, all of your guys are falling under that umbrella then you you stand to be very successful. And you were. Um, let's go to the general manager's position now. You, I mean, obviously, people listening here can hear that, you, you know, you were an area scout. You got that encyclopedia of players through those years. Then you became the cross-checker and you became the comparison guy. I love that, how you say that. And now you're the scouting director and you're leading the drafts and you're setting the tone for your organization. Now you're the general manager. Talk about that. Well, I was hired at the end of 02 uh, to go to, at that time, the Florida Marlins and um, went over there and I was the VP of player personnel. And basically I was, uh, I was the right-hand man for the GM regarding uh, trades and recommendations and different things. And, and it was fun because you're working at the highest level and man, you, you would get some traction going on a trade or hear from organizations about, Hey, we would be interested in this guy. What would we need to do? So then you go and see some of the players that, uh, potentially could be in the deal and you were, 
you were putting the puzzle together. Uh, and that for me was, uh, that was really exciting at that level. Uh, at the end of the O2 season, we made a few, uh, we made a few deals, uh, brought back some guys in, in, uh, Juan Pierre signed Pudge Rodriguez as a free agent, uh, traded for, um, um, Mark Redmond, a left-handed pitcher did a few things. And in 2003, we thought we had a good team. We jumped out of the gate, not to, uh, not to such a very good start. Um, our manager got fired. We brought in a 73-year-old Jack McKeon, and uh, we ended up winning the World Series. We knew we had a good team. We just weren't playing good. We got Jack involved in it, and there was a belief that, hey, we're pretty good. We can win, and we did win. And um, so that sense of, okay, this is how you put this together and the, the one thing you learn if, you know, when you're at that level is to thine own self be true, because this truly does reflect um, money. If you have limited money or if you have uh, limited players to move in a deal. So you need to be right. You want to be right because it's going to affect your credibility and it's also going to affect the outcome uh, result wise of, of uh, the owner's money. Um, from there, I was elevated to an assistant GM, and, and as you alluded to, at the end of 2013, uh, promoted to the job of general manager. And that was, uh, you know, that was when I first got involved in this, all I really wanted to do was be a scout. As it unfolded and time evolved, then I thought, you know what, ultimately one day I would like to ascend to that level and, and uh have that feeling of running an organization and I uh, was able to achieve that. And, um, you know, I did it for, uh, I did it for three years and I thought, you know what, we're moving in the right direction. Um, I felt comfortable because so many of the jobs that I had had in the game, you know, I could relate to the people who were now in those jobs for us with, uh, with the Marlins and, you know, I tried to be uh, empathetic and listen and offer suggestions and be a mentor and help. And uh, we were we were putting a nice puzzle together over there um, at the time. And then I uh, I went down on the field and uh, still had some had some real nice players in place. And um, then after at the end of 2015, I was let go. Uh, from that uh, position with the Marlins and uh, and went on to Washington. You know, it speaks to your – I just got a text, and it speaks to the respect that you have throughout the game that Stan Meek is on this call, John Hughes, you know, Fernie's here. Um, you know, to, to talk about a little bit about how, you know, you've – evolved and built your person through baseball and and how you treat people and why it is important to treat people with respect um first let me say those two gentlemen that you mentioned uh stan meek as we talked about earlier with roger youngward i don't know that there's anyone in this latest uh decade plus that's done it any better with what he has as a scouting director in miami 
uh, a quality human being. And I mean, when you look at Christian Yelich and John Carlos Stanton and Jose Fernandez and JT Riamuto and on and on of the guys that Stan was, uh, was uh, in charge of as a scouting director, just as, uh, just as good as it gets. And John Hughes, as we love to call him cheese is uh, he is the ultimate grinder. And, uh, all the things that I was discussing as an area scout, he uh, exemplifies each of them. And uh, there's no there's no secret that he's been scouting a long time, and it's for the very reasons that, uh, that I've discussed. And he's uh, one of the more respected guys in this game. Keep but it, as yeah, far go, as go ahead. my – no, I'm sorry. My my person, you know, I was blessed to be around some great, great baseball men who I tried to be a baseball thief, quite honestly. I tried to learn everything that they were willing to share, uh, that they wanted to mentor. Um, my greatest mentor in this game was Mr. George Zura, who you know, and he was a huge part of building the Big Red Machine that won uh, back-to-back World Series. And uh, truly one of the most respected guys in our game in a long, long time. And, uh, I mean, Roger Youngward for me is, uh, he truly is on the scouting wall of fame. Uh, I don't know that there's, uh, when you look at, I know everybody's into war right now, you know, where you look at players' wars and this and that. There can't be many scouting directors with a better war uh, than what Roger was responsible for. And uh, he was just, he was always the consummate professional, even keel all the time and had such a great, great, uh, had such a great demeanor about being a mentor and helping. And so those two guys were huge uh, for me and my development. Uh, When I became a scouting director and moved down to Tampa St. Pete, uh, George Zura had a tremendous relationship with a development guy named George Kissel who uh, really is the godfather of player development. And uh, I had the opportunity to spend many, many evenings and nights with him and breaking down, you know, things in development and what works and all the success that he's had. And um, so for me personally, um, my, my growth came from being around the people that I was around hiring great people that, you know, you talk about Stan Meek, who's on the call, R.J. Harrison, who was a longtime scouting director in Tampa. Uh, we would go to these showcase events, and we would sit up to 2 and 3 at, uh, in the morning, and we would go over minor league rosters with players that we had seen in the past and talk about we liked them, we didn't like them. Why were we wrong on this guy? Why were we right on that guy? And I think when you're around the people that hold you accountable and want to be held accountable, then there are opportunities to grow and learn from the things you've done either way, good or bad. And um, I think if you do that and you give respect to the people who are out there grinding it like you have done and, you know, a lot of other people that have been in this game a long time, then in turn, they will give the respect back to you, but they will also share things over the course of our careers that prove to be real beneficial to you. Danny, um, you know, there's a lot of people in this room that have probably never been in a talk or a room with a major league, a person that's been a major league manager. Now, 
you know, your entire background. I mean, you were a player, obviously, you coached, but your background was in scouting and, and signing players. Um, can you talk about being a major league manager, sitting in that dugout every day with 25 different personalities, dealing with the press, dealing with it? What, what did you find that was good about that job and what sucked about that job? Well, the good part, it was, I can tell you, it was the greatest education that you could never buy. Um, I learned, I, I watched the game then and now from a much different set of lens when I go to the ballpark. Um, you know, I, I knew those players so well. I, there's never been one night in my life where I went to bed and went, man, I want to be a major league manager. It evolved. It happened. And I did it. And I'm glad I did it. You know, some people say, DJ, it may have hurt you getting another opportunity. I, if it did, then it did. I can't live in the past. I'm thankful that I did it because I will tell you, in my time in that dugout, there were so many things that I learned, number one, about the daily grind, number two, the insecurities of the greatest players in the world, and the third part and a part that I'm so thankful I got to live and experience is what true makeup is. You know, we, we can talk about it in a draft room. You can, you can dig on it in high school and college, but crawling in the foxhole with those guys who are fighting to make their way. I mean, man, we had some talented guys, but they were babies. They were, they were too young to be what they became to be, but they were on their way. And, they dealt with some tough stuff from, you know, the insecurities of things that they had to go through, the learning at that highest level, which is extremely difficult place to learn the game. But you could see the talent there and see what was happening there and how these kids were evolving. Now, I'll say this. You, you asked me about the part that was hard, the hardest part. Don't kid yourself. And I, I can remember this like it was yesterday. Lou Pinella, when he was our manager in Seattle, stood up one time and he made a statement. He said, every male in the world thinks they can do two things better than every other male in the world. That's grill the best steak and manage a major league team. And that game on that field down there, is very hard every night to win. It doesn't matter if you're playing the worst team in the league or the best team in the league. It's hard to win on a nightly basis in the big leagues. Number two, I, I equated my first seven to ten days of like driving down the road looking through the front windshield, and then you turn and look out the side window, how fast that gets moving when you're looking out the side. The game moves very fast up there. And in the National League, when you had to be prepared for pitching changes, um, you know, pitchers that get banged around, you you got a limited bullpen on a given night, you're dealing with a guy that you don't want the other team to know who's injured, so you're, you're uh, playing with uh, two guys on the bench versus four. So all of these things factor into your nightly decisions, and you take it to bed with you every night. Even if you've won, you, you may wake up at three in the morning and go, man, I could have did X, but I did Y, or we should have done this and we would have had this type of result. So um, 
to to be a successful manager and understand all of the things that go into it, you have to tip your hat to these guys that have had the great careers and realize that it may look easy while they're doing it, but trust me, it the, the greatest text I got, I had probably 20-plus managers send me a text message when I got hired. Clint Hurdle sent one that made the most sense of all. DJ, welcome to the first guest club. And no truer words because you're, you're, you can do what you think is exactly right by the book. And if it doesn't work, you're a dummy. Then you can do something that's really off the cuff and it works and you're a genius. And you're going to be second guess. It's the nature of the business. And you just accept it and you move on. But I will say that those kids in that dugout, I loved them. And they had my respect. And at the end of the season, they come to me and told me that. And for that, I am very thankful because I think the most important thing any manager can do is to make sure that the players know that you have their back and they knew it. That's, that's awesome. Can you, you know, this, this form that we do here is for young kids and families that are trying to make their way, you know, trying to get to the next level and they have dreams like we had when we were their age. And you said a, a, a really interesting word to me, the word insecurity. And all of us have it in certain ways. Uh, we deal with it. How did you, in a major league, uh, you know, clubhouse, you know, how, how did you deal with young players that are stars that everybody thinks are perfect? How did you deal in helping them with insecurity? Uh, you, you talk to them. I mean, communication is so important. Um, how you talk to them, where you talk to them, and when you talk to them. Uh, you know, some guys you could go to right after the game if they had a bad game and say, hey, look, you know what? You threw a bad pitch right there. It got hit. I need you tomorrow. You're going to be right back in there. You got to let it go. Other guys you had to bring in the office or catch them around the batting cage to talk to them um, because they didn't want the other players to, you know, seem like you were singling them out. Uh, they're very proud, obviously. They're, they're the best in the world at what they do, no matter what age they are. And they don't want to go back to a hotel room at nighttime and watch 10 reruns of ESPN with them making an error or striking out with the winning run on third base or, you know, whatever the situation is. So um, talking to them, I used to use uh, during batting practice, I'd roam around the outfield uh, after the first group hit and try to talk to my guys in the bullpen, you know, and try to utilize that time with them. But the, uh, but the players, it was uh, depending on their personality or who it was as to when you found that right time. And I think that's important. And they need to know they're loved. They need to know that, you know what, you, you did this, you did that. But by God, tomorrow you're right back out there. And when they know that you believe in them and you have their back, and you're not going to throw them under the bus to the media, then they'll respect you and they go out and play. And uh, the group that we had there um, from about the, I think the date was somewhere around the 26th of August or whatever, to the end of the season. And that was out the big man, uh, Stanton, who had a broken ham eight bone. 
uh, we had the second best record in the National League behind the Cubs. And those guys, man, they come to play, and they played. And uh, you saw some of the young players who are now the stars of the game that have gone on to be MVPs or sign huge, huge contracts because of their ability. So the insecurity is real, but you, uh, if you address it in a way that they see you genuinely care, then I think that you, uh, you get their respect. Let's talk about social media now, um, since it's uh, a huge part of our lives and uh, what we read. You know, I, earlier you talked about you didn't need to see cool when you went to a game. Uh, what What's your whole feeling about social media and what advice could you give the kids and the families that are on here about social media and what and how people look at social media? Um. I think it's a part of our everyday life. I don't think you can stick your head in the sand. You know, now it's, I can't even keep up with them anymore. It used to be Facebook and Twitter, and now it's TikTok and so many other things that, you know, it's just part of our culture. But I would say as parents, and uh, the person on here who could speak to this more is Stan, because we, Stan used to have guys in our office who would monitor the draft picks he, they would monitor their uh, social media accounts to see what guys were putting out there. So I would say to parents and players who are on here, do not be naive because people are looking at what you tweet, what you put out there, and when you hit that send button, it's out there for the whole world to see. And I will go back to – do you really need to be cool? You know, is that, is that how you're going to impress someone on this call? No, you're going to do it with how hard you work, how you play the effort, the energy you give and not some tweet. I, I can truly say I've never drafted a person or been part of drafting anyone based on something they tweeted or TikToked. And I'm sure I can speak for Stan and Fernie and John and you, um, but it is part of our society, and you you need to realize that and try to help the young people, you know, hey, listen, that don't fit with what you're trying to do. And all it can do is hurt you. It can't help you. And I think if, if people look at things that way, then you will make wise decisions and go, why would I do something dumb at 16 or 17 that might – hurt me going to a junior college or college or getting drafted trying to be funny or look cool or, you know, just have bad judgment. You know, you talked about it earlier when you talked about uh, when you would go to a workout when you're the scouting director and, you know, in these talks that we have, Walter and I, with these college coaches, they talk about it a lot, how uh, their, their best looks are when kids come to their campuses and work out in front of them so they can, you know, their teammates can, the players that are already there can talk to them. They can talk to them. They get a feel for their person. What would, what advice would you give these kids uh, in today's game uh, that would be something that they can carry with them, that they can think about, like, what what mannerisms are you looking for? What what things are you looking for kids to do when you go out and watch a player? 
Well, if, if a young man was coming to my campus, and I, I can say this from an old school value way, and I know there's a lot of coaches that I run into now all across this country who also believe in this. I want a kid who's going to give me eye-to-eye contact. I want a good handshake. I want someone who will give me answers and not stammer. Um, you know, I want I want a player who – knows what they want to do. They're not afraid to openly address that and say, hey, coach, I, you know, I feel my best position is catcher. Uh, I know I've been a second baseman, whatever, shortstop. I, you know, do you see me as someone who could convert to catcher, that kind of thing? And I think if you have an open dialogue that way with coaches, the coaches will respect that. They will appreciate it, and they will give you that opportunity to express – your beliefs and why you feel strongly that way. And that might not be the school for you, or you might not be the player for that coach, but all you're trying to do is impress one coach. You don't need to sign uh, with 15 different schools or, you know, you can't get drafted by, but one team. So there one, one coach is the only one you need to impress. But I think by you being you, and being open, putting yourself out there, then the coaches get a true feel for who you are, and then they learn, they respect that, and then you have a chance to have a dialogue that can be beneficial. That's great. That's gold. That's gold information right there. Uh, Dan, we're getting close to it's 50. You've gone for 57 minutes. This has been uh, absolutely outstanding. I want you to know how much I appreciate this. I, I do want to ask you two more questions. Sure, anything. Um, not anything now. You don't don't <laughs> say that to me. Um, what I have, I'll start talking about my friend Bart Braun. Oh man, we'll both cry. <laughs> exactly. Um, can you talk about analytics? You know, obviously, two three years ago, guys are changing their swings. They're doing all these things. Um, you know, analytics are have always been a useful tool. We've always looked at averages and things that we all look for in scouting from our youngest ages. How valuable is analytics and what should these kids know what's important they should be doing that are analytical? Um, for the for the kids, the young players, get faster, get stronger, learn to throw harder, learn to control the ball, those things. As far as the launch angle and the exit velocities and all of that, if you're bigger, faster, stronger, those things take care of themselves. I I mean, analytics, just like social media, is in the game. And I actually like some of it, but it's not the decision maker. It's not what's going to go, yeah, we'll go down this road because he analytically is – is uh, superior with this. I like to say those who can evaluate do, those who can't measure. And it's a case where as a child, your parents teach you one thing before you cross the street, and that's to look both ways. And I think as an evaluator or a college coach, when you look both ways, both on the scouting and evaluative side and on the analytical side, you can make 
uh, decision that's going to give you the highest percentage to make the right decision. And I, I get frustrated sometimes when I see uh, on, on Twitter, I see some of these um, hitting gurus that, man, they, they've got a kid swing. There's, there's collapsing in the swing and they're working uphill. And you know what? If you want to learn to be a major league player, watch games on TV and copy those guys. They're the best in the world. That's where you're hoping to be. Look how they do what they do. And when you can do that and emulate that, I'll tell you a short story. Do I have 30 seconds? You got all the time you need. A 15-year-old Juan Soto in a cage in Santa Domingo, Dominican Republic is getting short tosses like we all do have done a thousand times. And all he's doing is taking the knob of the bat right to the ball, knob to the ball. The ball's going down just about two feet from his front foot, and he's trying to just work on getting that path of that bat to where it becomes a muscle memory. He's a 15-year-old kid. He's not working on a launch angle. He's not working on anything but the ability to get the knob to the ball because that's the path it's going to take when he's swinging. And that's part of the reason that I think he, he is the best hitter in the game today. And the great players do things, you know, some of them can make it look real easy and we all know that it's not, but they work so hard at creating good muscle memory habits and, Parents and players, if you're listening to me and you don't remember one thing I say, remember this. There is no magic formula. There is no one thing somebody's going to tell you. There's no uh, super, super uh, food that you can eat. You're only going to do it by working hard. Those of you on this call that have an Xbox and you're good at it, you know how you got good at it. You practiced it. You did it. You know how you're going to get good at catching ground balls or swinging the bat and hitting? You practice it. You do it. And there's no shortcut to gain that success that the players at the highest level have. And I think that, you know, for those of us that have been lucky to be around the game a long time, we've seen that with some of the greatest players in the history of our game and what it means to watch those guys do what they do and how hard they work it, just the little parts of it, so that it's always there for them. Wow. Dan, I can't thank you enough for taking the time on a Sunday night to come and speak to everybody. Uh, just fantastic stuff. I mean, I, I got so many notes written tonight that work ethic, honesty, loyalty, I mean, need <laughs> – Need to, don't need to see cool. I've never heard that one before. And that's uh, a southern thing. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> fantastic. I just want to say thank you. Um, if there's anything you want to say here at the end, to 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 say to the people listening to you, if you if there's any advice that you think that could really help anybody, whether it be a a, a college coach, uh, uh, a a parent, uh, could you please finish off with that? Um, for the parents listening and for the players, first and foremost, please, 
have fun. Make it fun. If you're a parent out there and you harp on your kid who's playing and he's 10 or 12 years old and he's trying to do his best and you want him to be the next great major league player, you can't, you can't beat them up before they get an opportunity to grow and develop. Just like if you were at work and somebody's screaming at you, hey, dummy, why'd you put that in there? That's the wrong package. You shouldn't do it. You're not going to respond that way, and, and nor will a ball player. And I think we've all on this call witnessed that. Make it fun, and for you players, have fun. And if you're a good Xbox player or whatever game you play and you got that way because you practiced, then do it if you truly want to be a good baseball player. Parents, spend time. Throw with them. Throw batting practice to them. Repetition over and over is the key to success. And for any coaches out there, and I I can say this because I've lived it two times and been to the top of the mountain, if you want to be great and, and watch your team come together and grow to champions, help create a culture that they want to be a part of. And I don't mean chemistry. I mean culture. Help create a culture that they want to be part of. And when you do that, you got something special and the rewards will be there at the end when you want them. Wow. Unbelievable. Guys, I'm getting messages from people uh, that are in the scouting industry, and I've got two of them that have just said that if there's a better guy that represents our business, show me where. So just unbelievable compliments to you, Dan. Again, thank you so much. I appreciate you having me, and it's an honor to to be on this call and give back. And the only thing I would ask you is when you have Stan Meek on this is that you notify me so I can listen. (laughs) I will absolutely have Stan Meek on this, and uh, I will let you know. But thank you for your time. Good luck, everybody, and I hope you keep keep dreaming and reach your dreams. Thank you, Danny. Hey, guys, now I'm going to bring on uh, my – my partner in crime, Walter Beatty, to talk about his show tomorrow night, Real Talk Monday. Walter, get on in here. I am. Uh, I have been taking notes diligently for over an hour. Uh, we, uh, Butch, we've probably done collectively between the both of us over a hundred of these Twitter Space type events. I, I'm almost sixty years old. I've been around the game in a much different capacity than either you or Mr. Jennings, for sure. I have learned more about the sport of baseball in this 70-minute call than I think I've learned collectively over my last 30 years. Some of the things that I heard from Mr. Jennings tonight I wish could be put uh, in a packet or some sort of audio file that we could hand to parents as almost like in case of emergency, break glass. <laughs> listen, listen to this. I, I emphasize, if you are a parent and you, you find your way to this podcast, you want to save this on your phone because this was, this was more than gold. This was all platinum at its highest form with regard to baseball uh, master's educational series. Uh, thank you very, very much, Mr. Jennings. And uh, my goodness, my notepad is, I got scribbles on the sides, on the bottoms, in the corners. I ran out of room, but I took a lot of notes and hope to re-listen to this. 
uh, over the next few days. Tomorrow evening at 9 p.m., we'll have John McCormick uh, Conference USA, Florida Atlantic University, or FAU Owls. Uh, they are currently five and three. Coach McCormick will join us. We'll talk a little bit about Southern Florida and Boca, where presently right now it's 22 degrees and a foot and a half of snow in Boston. So everything he can tell me about Florida and baseball, I'm going to soak it up. So that, that'll be who will join us uh, this coming Monday. Butch is John McCormick from FAU. I look forward to listening uh, and being with you tomorrow night. And guys, I want to congratulate uh, a former guest on this show, Reggie Christensen. Uh, what a weekend they had down at Long Beach State. Guys, I've seen some uh, I thought Reggie was in for a tough season, uh, but his pitchers this weekend came out and threw strikes, and they have some really physical players that I was not aware of, but I got to see uh, the last two days, and uh, you know, Long Beach State is an excellent team. Coach Valenzuela is an excellent coach. But uh, Sac State was just the better team this weekend. So I uh, take my hat off to Reggie. Great job. Consistent. Reggie's a winner. Uh, and we're glad to have him on the show. But to the rest of you, uh, success to all of you. I appreciate you coming on tonight and listening to, to DJ. Uh, he truly is one of the uh, the greatest ambassadors for our game. All people should get a chance to listen to him. And I hope the kids and the parents that were on this call tonight uh, listened to his words. They were great words of wisdom and experience. This man has lived it. Every one of those positions he's lived. So, guys, really happy you guys came on tonight. I hope you have a great week. I'll see you tomorrow night on Real Talk with my man, Walter Beatty. Good night, everybody.